Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. It is well accepted that the Second Seminole War, from 1835 to 1842, was a war of Indian removal, one to expel Seminole from Florida and relocate them to Oklahoma. Whether intended explicitly or not, the Second Seminole War also served to enslave black Seminole captured in the removal process. A Florida historian contends that the war was driven by American plantation societies relentless efforts to return as many black Seminoles, if not all, to slavery. He finds evidence that shows shipping blacks into bondage was not only a major underlying theme throughout the war, but at various points the primary goal. He calls the Second Seminole War the largest slave uprising in American history. With us today to discuss his insights is Dr. Anthony E. Dixon. He is the author of Florida's Negro War. He's the founder and president of AHRA, Archival and Historical Research Associates. He's the field director for the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network, and he is an adjunct professor of history at Florida A&M University. Dr. Anthony Dixon, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Before we proceed, some clarification. Some listeners to this podcast may be surprised at the realization that they were black Seminole. Please explain how there came to be black Seminoles in Florida. Black Seminoles actually began as black maroon societies. Uh, these societies happened as a result of their uh, absconding or rebelling from their European authority. It doesn't actually start with the English. It actually starts with the Spanish uh, and their first attempt at colonization in Guadalupe, which is present-day Cephalo Sound, Georgia. What happens in this instance is that the Guala Native Americans convinced those enslaved Africans to not only rebel, but also burn down the colony. And so what happens is that when they do so, they run and they have gone into the Florida wilderness. And so that was the beginning of the first black maroon society. And from that point, they began a type of ethnogenesis in which they created and transformed themselves into the black criminal. It's important to clarify that in Spanish Florida... Slavery was not an institution at the time that the U.S. took over the territory. And although it did exist during the 20 years of British control between 1763 and 1783, incoming Americans actually reintroduced slavery to Florida after the United States acquired it from Spain in 1819. So at the time of the Second Seminole War, one would find in Florida free blacks, enslaved blacks, and black Seminole. To many in the southern United States, of course, this was a distinction without much of a difference. How did this complicate life for the black Seminole before the war and lead to this united effort among the three at the time the war began? Well, there was always this 
struggle for blacks to declare themselves uh, in La Florida. Are you exactly right when you say the the ideals for slavery were quite different between the Spanish and the English? Uh, The Spanish, I do want to clarify though, the Spanish did involve themselves in slavery, but they did not involve themselves in large plantation-style agrarian society. So their needs for slaves were totally different from the English. Their needs were more of a domestic as well as a labor position in which they needed them to build the colonies themselves. They used Native Americans as well as blacks to lay and clear out land initially, uh, particularly during the 1500s. And so what we see is enslaved Africans coming up from the Caribbean and being utilized in La Florida, and then sometimes um, being taken back to the Caribbean. So what we see is a different type of uh, different type of slavery in which large agrarian society was not used by the Spanish, but they did involve themselves in slavery. And I think that's important to to understand there that slavery was existent between the Europeans, uh, particularly in the Caribbean. But when we look in at Florida, there's a different type of usage. And so when you say the British, when the British take over Florida uh, for that period of years, actually in the 1700s, this is when we start seeing large agrarian society being brought into uh, Florida and then large numbers of enslaved Africans for that purpose. That's a very important point. Okay, now by the time we get to the Seminole Wars, we're now talking about the 19th century. And so um, what we're basically saying now that there's a new new player in the game, so to speak, and that's the Americans. And so the Americans are basing uh, their society, of course, on this large agrarian style as well. So what happens is that they see these runaway slaves that have been in Florida and in Spanish Florida for over 100 years now, and they're beginning to recognize that they have created and been allowed to create their own society. The problem is, by the time we get to the Second Spanish, Second Seminole War, the Spanish are pretty much uh, out of the picture, British are out of the picture, and so blacks and Native Americans are down to themselves as their last ally. So what we see is free blacks in the area, those black Seminoles, and then that effort in trying to figure out who is who. Because you have Native Americans who are encouraging, they're both encouraging and allowing uh, blacks in the agrarian society and in plantation society to have gone and live in close proximity. Now, they don't automatically accept these runaways into their society, but they do accept the idea that they are eating, trying to eke out their own freedom and their own cultural existence. And so you see, by the time we get to the Second Seminole War in the 18th, on their course in the 1830s, signed basically a, a living arrangement in which free blacks 
that are inside of plantation society, very few of them are recognized. Then your enslaved blacks who are now making up the majority of the blacks in the area, particularly around St. John's River. And then you have the black Seminoles. And we see in different instances where these groups are working together and at times are at all. And I'll give you a good example. When runaway slaves come into and go into the wilderness and into Florida, uh, into the Florida wilderness around St. John's River, they aren't just accepted by the black Seminoles nor Seminole Native Americans. They are white. They have to prove themselves. And many are are left to uh, pay for themselves for a while until they have proven that they do wish to, to hang in and eke out their own existence. Uh, many, as we understand, and, and looking back in hindsight, which is always the easiest to do, we understand that many of them would go out into the wilderness and they would get out there and they understand how hard it actually was to live and eke out their own existence. Uh, food sources were scarce in some areas. So some of those runaway slaves did get the seasoned slave people who had newly absconded, did get lyrics. Some of them did return. And see, when they, once they returned to plantation society, then there was that fear, right, that they would be punished, and in that punishment, they would reveal where the other runaways were. So once they went out there, they weren't just automatically accepted by those who were already out there, and particularly those who were second and third generations of runaways. So it was a, a careful situation in which diplomacy had to be utilized as well as culture. Uh, we also have instances, we have instances in which American slave owners are going out into La Florida, particularly from Georgia, uh, coming out, and they're going down into the St. John's region, and some are going, are going as far over as the Tallahassee region, and they are looking for runaways. And so they will just walk into Native American villages, or they would track down these maroon societies, and they would begin to just round up black and claim them as being their slaves. And so there, the diplomacy then had to come in between Native Americans and them understanding that Americans respected the idea of, of owning another human being and property rights. So we even see negotiations where Native Americans are claiming blacks as their slaves but their slaves in name only. And this is just a tactic that they use in order to keep that kinship and keep the, that black within their uh, community. So it was a, a very tricky situation, so to speak, for uh, black during that time. You're also saying it was the largest slave uprising on American soil up to the time and up later to the Civil War. Please talk about that. It's not just the Native American War, but it was also a war for these blacks to maintain and retain, in some instances, retain their freedom. And when you look at it through those, through that lens, you realize that it was indeed 
of rebellion. How distinctly different were black Seminoles' motivations for fighting compared with the Seminole Indians? Oh, it is, it is clear, uh, particularly when the Articles of Capitulation in 1838 are signed, there are two objections within the war for the Seminole Nation. There's an objective by the Native Americans to keep the land and stay in Florida, and there's an objective by uh, black criminals to live free. And so what we find is that when they initially go out uh, just prior, in the years prior to the Second Seminole War beginning, when they go out to the Oklahoma Territory, Arkansas Territory, which is present-day Oklahoma, when they go out there and they look around, it is blacks who are actually listening to the terms of relocation. Uh, Native Americans, not so much. They are not entertaining the idea. Only few, only a few of the Seminole chiefs are even entertaining the idea of relocate. But black Seminoles are not a totally objective or are not totally against relocation. So we see there that there are clearly two objectives too. And we find that as a kind of rift that develops within the Seminole Nation. Uh, we see that rift actually coming to a boil or to a head, so to speak, once they do relocate uh, after the war and they are out in the uh, Arkansas Territory. We see a real schism taking place where Native Americans are upset with uh, the black Seminole faction because they feel like they should have stayed and fought. And black Seminoles are saying, no, we made it clear that our clear objective, our first and our primary objective, was to remain free. And so we see that there is a uh, clear difference, particularly by the time we get about halfway through the war, in 1830, around 1838, 1839, when many of the black Seminoles began to stop fighting and relocate out to the Arkansas Territory. Being a black Seminole during the war was more fluid than it was before the war because you had freed slaves who joined on and you didn't have, as before the war that you noted, a, a period to see if they were going to be integrated into the society or not. You also had free blacks who felt that the situation in Florida was not good for them, even though they were free, and joined up with the Seminole. And we take all three and call them the Black Seminole. You have to understand the fluidity there changed as the situation changed itself. Uh, you had three distinct um, geographical areas and what we call bands of Native Seminole period, whether they were Black Seminoles or Seminole Native Americans. You had the St. John's Band, then you had Gainesville Band, and then the Tampa. And so as, those, as the migratory patterns had to change, uh, particularly as the war and the different invasions that took place, uh, the fluidity actually changed as well. Uh, most of your uh, free blacks that were in and around St. John's River, they saw much more pressure. They were under a much bigger microscope. They felt much more pressure from the Americans in terms of their distrust, distrust, right? Americans are not, not as trusting with free blacks 
uh, on the St. John's area as they are in the Tallahassee and in the Tampa area. And this is primarily this is primarily due to uh, the strength in numbers as well. Plantation society has to grow and strengthen itself in the Tallahassee area, which it does, but in that in that time period and when it is building and, and strengthening itself, it has to uh, go through a what we consider a phase in which free blacks begin to see themselves initially in a pretty good position and then as Tallahassee grows to the epicenter of cotton Florida, that thing distrust that they were feeling on the in the St. John's area was now beginning to show itself and be a prevalent, prevalent aspect of uh, relationships between free blacks and whites in the Tallahassee area and Gainesville area as well. So it's a fluid. It was a fluid situation, and the fluidity actually it was actually dependent upon the rise of plantation society in a specific area. When General Jessup wrote a correspondent that the Second Seminole War was a Negro, not an Indian war, what did he mean? Well, this was, this was when the U.S. military was realizing, this is when they basically realized that the black Seminoles were indeed heavily, heavily involved in negotiations, that they had a very strong influence on their Native American counterparts, when he makes this declaration, he fully understands that there are clearly two objectives and that at that particular time, the objective to remove the blacks and return them to slavery was a higher objective than removing Native Americans from the land. And this is when he made this statement, when it was clear. We also have clear evidence um, coming from Georgia, South Carolina, and to the Florida Territory residents. All of them are sending these letters to the Secretary of War. They're sending it to the government. They are saying that plantation society and their, their lives are, will always be threatened, and that plantation society will never reach its maximum potential as long as black know that there are runaway blacks who are living free in Florida. And this was the catalyst in understanding that they believed that this was a direct threat to the growth of plantation society. And so when this is, is made clear to the government and clear to the military, you start seeing them govern themselves accordingly. And it is when the military understands that they realize that, hey, this is not just a Native American war. No, this is not an Indian war. This is about returning black to slavery. And as we see in several in different periods of time during the war, where that was a clear effect, that they would not be able to remove the Seminole Indians from, or Seminole Native Americans, they would not be able to remove them from Florida until after they have gotten all the blacks back into slavery. 
because it is the blacks who are negotiating the hardest. It is the blacks who are putting up the most fights at this point. And we see this clearly in different um, periods of time during the war where they recognize that the issue of black and black living in Florida priests is the primary issue of the war and that these blacks must be returned to slavery. Uh, General Jessup agreed that the Seminole could migrate peacefully with their allies and with their bona fide property is the language they used. What did these terms mean to black Seminole, to Seminole Indians, and to the U.S. Army, their bona fide property? All right. This is the what we are talking about now are the Articles of Capitulation that were signed in 1838. When these Articles of Capitulation are signed in 1838, the U.S. government basically concedes and says, fine, they're basically saying, fine, fine. All the blacks, those blacks you claim as your allies, those blacks you claim as your family, those blacks who you claim as your slaves, all of them, all of them can go with you and immigrate out. Because this war is, is dragging on. There's no way that we can get this done. We cannot separate the two, and we must give up on our effort to return all of these blacks to slavery. That is what we see happening with those Articles of Capitulation in 1838, that the government, government gives up and they actually quit trying to enslave or re-enslave all of the black Seminoles. Now, for black Seminoles, this was a turning point. For black Seminoles, this was the victory that they sought out. So many of the blacks quit fighting, and they agreed, and they went to Tampa, primarily through Tampa, and they immigrated out to the Arkansas Territory, which, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is present-day Oklahoma. Now, in 1838, what we see is large numbers of blacks going out and then some blacks coming back in order to convince, convince the other blacks that, hey, it's not a trick, we are living free, we are living out in a different area, but we are living free. For Native Americans, this was not a good move. Native Americans were not happy about the capitulation. Native Americans were not happy at the fact that blacks were accepting this capitulation. And so what we see is the beginning of what I just mentioned earlier about the rift that begins to happen between Native Americans and blacks within the Seminole Nation. By the time they get out through the Arkansas Territory, uh, there's a rift beginning. Of course, the war goes on for some more years, and by the time the war ends in 42, there is a, a, a problem that exists between Native Americans and blacks within the Seminole Nation. Uh, Native Americans are upset with the blacks because they feel like they quit on them, which they, let's be honest, they did. They stopped fighting, and they had to get the understanding again 
that the number one objective for black Seminoles was freedom. And so we see these uh we see that basic problem becoming a real schism and creating a real schism rather between the two. And so we even see uh black believing uh, Seminole Indians Seminole Native Americans, rather, excuse me. Seminole Native Americans, we see them leaving, uh, leaving the reservation, leaving them in uh, in present-day Oklahoma, and traveling to first Brackettville, Texas, and then into Nacimiento, Mexico. So we see that schism rising from the Articles of Capitulation and the fact that things did change in 1838 when the U.S. government gave up their attempt to enslave and re-enslave, in some cases, the black Seminoles. I could understand the Seminole perspective in that they're fighting the war against removal and they have allies in black Seminole and free blacks and in, we call them runaway slaves, fighting against this removal, they believed that if they win the war, they could be left alone. But the black Seminole and blacks in general knew they'd never be left alone. Even if there came a peace with the Seminole to be left alone, that there would still be slave catchers and government officials coming in to try to grab them and send them back into bondage north of Florida. So this definitely points out the schism that went on between the two of them in this and why Jessup would say, if I want the Seminole to migrate, I'll capitulate in this regard and say, if you bring the black Seminole with you, I'm good with that. Then we get everybody out of there. In 1838, the U.S. government does. They do go back and they say, fine, fine, fine. They do allow these blacks to go out with. We see large numbers of black Seminoles who are throwing down their weapons and immigrating out west. We start seeing this, even the emerging black Seminole leader, John Horse, he even agrees to these articles of capitulation, and he goes out west, and that's when he becomes the leader of the black Seminole, and he actually comes back. He is back in, in Florida toward the latter part of the uh, Second Seminole War, but he is there to convince black Seminoles that they are indeed living free out west. So there is there is that period where the U.S. government does give up. It is a victory, and that's why we we make this uh, concerted effort to say that it is the largest slave rebellion, because they do include these articles of capitulation that allow these blacks to go out to out west to present day. Um, Oklahoma and live free. It's my understanding that um, they had this and they started the process and then the government came back and said, no, 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 we don't want you to do that. But um, it was already, I don't want to use it in a pejorative way, too late, but many had already started the move. Right. Most of them, not, not many, uh, a large number, a very, very large number had. The issue was it took a second effort to convince the Georgia and South Carolina planters, and how they actually did it was by relying back on Jackson's 
Indian removal policy. And what they did was they they convinced them, they said, this is how if you want, if you truly want that land between the Clockney River and the Swanee River, this is the best way to get rid of them. And not only that, what we see is with each Seminole War, right, with each, with each Seminole War, we see Florida progressing as a state. The first Seminole War leads the way for Florida to become a territory. The second Seminole War leads the way for Florida to enter statehood. So they had to understand, they had to get the planters to understand that these articles of capitulation, right, and I know you're upset about the lost number of, of slaves that we have, but if you want to open up, if you want to expand plantation society, this is a sacrifice that you're going to have to make. And then they eventually, of course, uh, were able to get the planters in Georgia and South Carolina to understand it. You've been studying Second Seminole War for some years now. How has your understanding, how has your understanding, how has your thinking changed about it over time? Um, only a few things have have really changed in um, the overall thinking. Originally, I, I used to look at each war separately and then concentrate it, of course, on the Second Seminole War, and that's where I placed most of my asserted efforts in terms of research and whatnot. But as time goes, went on, and of course, uh, reading more and coming in contact with other researchers and things of that nature, we see the totality for me, rather, I see the totality of all three of the wars, that Florida doesn't become the way it is without those Seminole Wars. So for me, all three Seminole Wars indicate are a direct indicator on how Florida becomes a U.S. state. What's been most surprising to you about studying these wars? I didn't understand the totality of the rift between Native Americans and Black Seminoles. And I'll give you a good example. When I first started my research in the late 90s, early, well, basically early 2000, I had a very, very, very hard time getting the Seminole Native Americans to open up to me. I couldn't get anyone to interview. I wanted to look at their records. It was quite arduous, I'll be honest with you. Um, I once even had the phone hung up on me. But in time, things have changed. They've been much, much more open to um, looking at the relationship and exploring them and examining um, the relationship between the two. And so what, what I had to, as a researcher and understanding the Seminole dynamics, not only just in Florida, but the overall dynamics of the Seminole Nation was understanding just how that real had, um, had changed the relationship forever. In other words, um, we're, we are now looking at where Seminole Native Americans are more open discussing the black Seminoles and the relationship between the Native Americans 
and black Seminoles in the nation. Dr. Anthony Dixon, thanks for being with us today on the Seminole Wars podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.